you have your Bible, the book of James is where we're going to be for just a moment. We are in part five of our study through the letter of James. And if you don't have a Bible like at all and you don't want to use your phone, on the back of the pew in front of you is a Bible. Page 950, if you're new to the Bible, page 950, the book of James. Uh, Here at PVC, we walk through books of the Bible. We recognize that God gave us His Word and we should study it the way He gave it, book by book, word by word, verse by verse. And so throughout the series of James, what we are recognizing is that our faith should be active. James is the show me book of the New Testament. A lot of people will tell you they're a Christian, but then when it comes to showing you, there's not a whole lot of showing, there's just a lot of telling. And James will not let you and I, he won't let anyone say that they are a Christian and it not show up in their life. And we are going to see that over the next several weeks. And today, we are in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. But I want to start with a phrase, and I want you to remember this to him in our discussion this morning. And it is this, it is impossible, it is impossible to walk with the triune God of the Bible in a vibrant, healthy, flourishing way if we are not convinced that God is good. Let me say that again. It is impossible to walk with the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is impossible to walk with Him in a healthy, flourishing way if you are not convinced that God is good. Now, the word God actually comes from a German word that means good. So, to say God means to also say that He is good. So, to say that God is good is simply to admit that's who our God is. He is a good God. So, God is not just good. God is goodness itself. So, to say God is to say He's good. Some of us who grew up in church, we know the phrase, do we not? God is good. And all the time, what? God is good. And the saints said that for many, many years as a public way of confessing that they indeed serve a God who is good, and He is good not just sometimes, not just a part of the time, but all the time the God we serve is good. And some of the recipients in James's letter here were undergoing some trials that were not good. And namely, the the trial they were most likely experiencing is these are Jewish Christians who had come to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, and now they are being persecuted by their Jewish families and Jewish friends because they left Judaism. They turned their back on how they were raised. 
They began to say, mom and dad got it wrong. Grandma and grandpa got it wrong. Jesus really is the Messiah, and they had turned their back on their heritage, on their family, on everything that they knew. And so, their family, their friends, their Jewish counterparts began to persecute them in a physical way, heavily persecuting them, and that's probably the trial that James is recognizing in the life of these recipients. And the challenge with this trial in their life is they are actually allowing the trial to deceive them into thinking that God is not good. Because if God is good, and I left everything that I know to follow His Son, my Savior, and now all this hell on earth activity has happened in my life, how can God be good when everything that I'm going through is not good? And James told them in chapter 1, verse 2, to count it joy. Think about this, he says, friends. Count it joy when you face trials. And here's why. The testing of your faith is, is producing steadfastness in you. And, and he says, if you'll let steadfastness have its work in you, you'll grow up. You'll be mature. Your faith will be strengthened. You'll have spiritual stamina. You know, we, we connected this in our own trials, that some of us face things, uh, maybe like, maybe your family hasn't kicked you out of the family because you follow Jesus like these Jewish Christians, but all of us have faced trials, right? I said a few weeks ago, you're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're about to go into one. You're either in one, you're coming out of one, or you're about to go, Monday is going to be difficult, possibly. Because this is the way life in a fallen world works. Trials are a part of life. And that's why he says, when, not if, but when you meet trials. And James wants us to understand, dear friends, under the power of the Holy Spirit as he writes, that trials are intended to not just grow us, but to nurture our faith. And ultimately, we cannot allow trials to throw us into what we looked at last week, sin. Because you know what it's like when your kids won't listen, and you're in a trial, and you've told them, and you've told them, and you've told them, or they back talk, or whatever it is that they do, and that final thing they said or did, you flew off the handle. And now you're disciplining them, not just out of anger, like you're in rage, even if it was for 10 seconds. And now you have provoked them to wrath, Ephesians So you see how the trial because you didn't stay under it, I didn't stay under it, and ask the Spirit of God to give me strength in it, I gave in to the temptation to lash out. And now I crushed Eden or Theo's spirit because the trial led to a temptation. And what these believers were saying is, God, you're the one who did it. And you remember, we saw this in the Garden of Eden. Is this not what Adam and Eve did? Remember, they trip up, they eat of the fruit. God comes to Eve, what have you done? Remember what she says? The serpent deceived me, deceived me, and, and, and the serpent is still deceiving God's people today in a number of ways, but according to this text, one way that he's going to deceive you and you're going to deceive yourself is when you're going through difficulty in marriage or as a grandma or as a single, as a widow, as a widower, when you're in a job that you're like, God gave me this job, now I can't stand this job, and now I'm upset at this job, and now I'm upset at God because He gave me this job, and now I'm doubting if He's really a good God, if He would open this door and put me… You see how you go down a trail real quickly. You don't want to go down. 
So you have to protect yourself against the deception that God is not good. At a point in C.S. Lewis's life, if you know um, C.S. Lewis, this great apologist, he was going through a great trial, and he wrote this. He said, the thing I fear the most as I go through this, watch this now, is not that I'll stop believing in God, but that I would start believing dreadful things about Him. That can happen to you. It can happen to you. Quite honestly, it may be happening to some of you that are watching online or some of you in the room. Because of what you're going through, it has deceived you. And you have concluded, even though you may not ever say it, that God is not good. Because if He were good, why am I going through this? And so Pastor James here wants to come along and help us, all right? He wants to help us as they experience persecution, you and I experience trials. And I've titled this sermon, Deception Protection. Deception Protection. Uh, you need to be protected from the deception that God is not good. And there's three ways, very simple ways, that he's going to show us. But before we get to 17, I want you to see how he addresses these individuals in verse um, 16. He says, my beloved brothers, verse 16, do not be deceived. The word deceive means don't be led astray, don't be strayed away. It's the picture of a boat that leaves the dock and its destination is way out there and then it hits choppy water and it gets off course and it never makes it to the other side. And that's the idea of being deceived here that you launch out in your life, trials hit you, and you shipwreck your faith somewhere. And there's a lot of people, by the way, who have said, I'm done with God. I'm done with Christianity. Forget the church. Forget it all. Because if God would put me through that, I'm out. And that's what it means to be deceived. Because you've allowed what you're going through to not, I'm not saying it wasn't hard. I'm not saying it's not difficult. But God is still God. God is still good, even when things in your life are bad. In fact, this is the testimony of the church, is it not? This is what God is. God has preserved His people for ages and ages and ages through all kinds of things. And it's evidence, friends, that He loves His children. And notice He calls them here, my beloved brothers. Now, the ESV uses this word adelphoi in the Greek, but it actually means brothers and sisters. It's a gender-neutral term. Be careful with me saying that, but it's a gender-neutral term in the Greek, and it just simply means brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what the term means. So he's talking here to the people of God. He's talking to Jewish believers. He's talking to those who've walked away from Judaism and have embraced Jesus as Messiah. And notice James is about to tell them some hard things, so he wants to make sure they know you're my beloved. You're my beloved brother or sister, which should tell you something. When you go to confront a brother or sister, it, it's, it, it should come from a place of endearment. It should come from a place of brother or sister. I see this in your life, and it's not good. But understand, I love you, and I want to help you and walk with you. See, it's a place of endearment. And James wants to make sure before I get real sharp with you, I need to be tender with you. And we need to be tender friends with one another, especially as we help one another stay on the path that God would want us to. Three things in verse 17 and 18, three things that I think will help us when it comes to deception protection. Number one, I want you to notice the gifts. 
Notice verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, where do good and perfect things come from? They don't come below you. They don't come from around you. They certainly don't come from within you. They actually come above you where God is. And that's what James is saying here, that God is the source of all that is good. And the word every here is emphatic. The word every is not just emphatic, it's holistic. In other words, it covers the whole gamut of all the gifts that God gives. Anything good in your life is evidence of God. Anything good in your life is evidence of Him. To say it another way, nothing that is not good and perfect is from God. That'd be the other way to say it. If it's not good and it's not perfect, then it's not from God, and that's what he's saying here. So the gifts of God are good, but I want you to notice this as well. The actual act of giving is good. You could say it this way. You could translate this this way. The good giving God gives good gifts. The good giving God gives good gifts. That's what He does. You need to, when you're going through difficulty, friend, you, and you're going through trial, the first thing you need to do and would be very helpful for you is to get out a sheet of paper and begin to write down all the good gifts that God has blessed you with. Things like a job, things like hot fudge Sundays. Things like the grass and how it smells after you mow it. That's a good thing. Because sometimes when we think about the good gifts of God, we kind of hear organ music in the back and we say all of these high and lofty things, and we should. But I'm talking about just the plain old good things that God has blessed you with. Anybody have any good gifts God's given you lately? It all comes from Him. And one deterrent, one way to not allow yourself to be deceived when things are bad is fight back against it and begin to counter that with all the good gifts that God has blessed you with. Ask Him to give you a grateful heart for all that He has given you. Ask Him to give you the ability to focus on what is right in your life, not on what is wrong in your life. Give Him the glory for it. Watch Him energize your ability to not focus on what is wrong. I'm not saying that we don't need to think about it. I'm just saying you're going to go nuts if you do. So this is really a call to spiritual sanity, quite honestly. If you want to be insane spiritually, then just focus on all that you wish were right. But if you want to be sane and walking, then begin to give your attention. I'm not saying you ignore it, but I'm saying give your attention to the good gifts that God has given. And not just the good gifts God has given, but the fact that He is a giving God, that He gives those things, that it comes out of His heart to give you those good things. He wants you to enjoy the good gifts He's given to you. And I think that would be another question. Are you enjoying the good gifts God has given? Or are you taking them for granted? Do you have a sense of entitlement? God owes me this. See, when I begin to doubt the goodness of God, it's when Jordan thinks God owes him something. It's when, Lord, I did this, and I was expecting you to do this, but you didn't do this, but I did this, and you didn't do this, so now I, I doubt that you're really good because I did this, and you, did, and you didn't do what I thought you would do. And then I have to deal with, well, why am I even doing what I'm doing? My motivation's wrong. So it's like, I'm not having a quiet time to have a good day. I'm not reading my Bible so my kids will turn out right. No, I'm doing all of that because I love Him, and I want to serve Him. And if He gives me nothing else the rest of my life, He is still good. If He takes things away from me that are very precious to me, He is still good. He is still faithful. It would crush me if he took my family away from me. It would crush me. And yet he would still be who he is. He would still be good. He would still be faithful. 
I think that's a really hard question we all have to ask. If God took the dearest thing from you, would He still be good to you? Because He could. For His own sovereign purpose, He could take it away. But do you have a depth of love, devotion to Him? You say, Jordan, I'm not quite there yet. Well, listen, that's okay. But let's take a step toward getting deeper in all the goodness that He is and what He's given to us to prepare for the day when it happens. When it happens, it's too late. You're going to shipwreck. So, so get your legs underneath you, friend. Let Him put some spiritual meat on your bones. A lot of us are really lean, and we're not, our muscles are flabby when it comes to trials. And so the littlest of thing knocks us out. And God says, I want to build you up so that I can build stamina in you, so that I can, even in that, I'll be faithful and you, or, or you'll recognize my faithfulness. Now, very quickly, I want you to think about something. This is the second time James uses the word perfect in the letter. The first time he used it was in verse 4. Remember this verse that we all just love? Notice verse 4. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the desire of the trial is to make you perfect. The desire of the trial, perfect doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Perfect means that you're going to mature from spiritual adolescence to spiritual maturity. You're going to go from first grade to second grade to third grade to fourth grade. I mean, I want you to think about what grade are you in spiritually? What grade are you in? Are you first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade? The question is, are you you going to be promoted soon? Well, the way you get promoted is by being tested. And when you depend on God's grace and you pass the test, you get to go to the next grade. But if you fail it, then you get to take it over. And some of us have been taking the same test over for many years because as soon as it gets hard, we bolt. And we stay spiritually short when God wants to make us spiritually tall. So the recipients of this letter, when he says a perfect gift, what he means is is that the trial he's put on you is actually a perfect gift from him. It's actually what you need is what James is saying. It's a good gift. It's a perfect gift because it's designed to perfectly mature you. So think about the gift. Second of all, the giver, second part of 17, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, notice that verb, coming down. You see that there? This means continual, never-ending. We could translate it this way, that every good and perfect gift is constantly flowing from God to us. Every good, and remember, the perfect gift is maybe the gift you don't want. You know, sometimes you get a gift and you're like, I'd rather give that one back. And a lot of us, when God says, I want to give you some trials, we're like, no, you can have that one back. But again, it's a perfect gift. Even when you don't think it's perfect, God thinks it's perfect. And if it got through him to get to you, then he's got purpose connected to it. And he wants to use it to mature us and perfectly align our will with his own will. So here's the counsel that when you're in tests and when you're in trials, you need to look up. Don't look around you. You'll get very confused. Don't look in you. You'll get very depressed. But look upward, and you'll see in God there is great hope. You should write this down. My outlook is determined by my uplook. My outlook is determined by my uplook. You know the people that go through really difficult times where they seem to just be like gliding and you're like, what in the world? It's because they have an outlook that is focused on an uplook. 
They just keep looking up to God, and He sustains them. Psalm 121, where does my help come from? The psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. And then notice he calls God the Father of lights. Lights here means the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. That's what he means here, the Father of lights. To say that God is the Father of lights means Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that means he made it, he's over it, he's in control of it. And when James uses this here, he says that in the Father of lights, uh, there is no variation. He says there is no shadow that is due to change. The word variation here means there's, there's, variation means there's change. The sun, the moon, the stars, whether you know it or not, they're always mutating. I, I, I don't know astronomy really well, but obviously I peeled into it a little bit this week when it comes to this. But the, the, the lights, the sun, the moon, they are mutating. They're always changing. They're always unfolding in different ways. And what James is saying here is that is not true about God. The moon changes. The stars change. It's, it's rotating around. And in fact, when we stand here and we look at the sun, it often looks like the sun's moving, does it not? But as you astronomers, people know, it, it's not moving. Um, um, it stays the same. And, and friend, the sun's not moving. You and I are moving. And, and what he's saying here is that when everything around you is moving, God is not moving. When everything around you is changing, God is not changing. That he, he doesn't, he's not subject to the winds and the waves. He's not like a parent who flies off the handle. He's, he's not like a, a person who, who uh, one day they're in a good, anybody, any moody people in the room? God's not moody. God help us, amen? He's not who He is, He is. And who He is, He will always be. He's God. And that's James's point here. You know, it reminds me of an old couple who was riding together, like down an old country road, and they were talking about years gone by. And the wife said to her husband, said, honey, do you remember back in the day when we used to sit so close together that people could not even tell if you were driving or I was driving, we were so close. And he said, honey, why can't we be close like that again? And he said, well, I don't know all the answers to that, but this much I know, I have not moved. Now, that's a silly way of saying, if your relationship with God is not where it once was, who moved? Let me answer for us. We did. So friend, you need to make a commitment today to get back to the giver and ask Him to restore in you the joy of loving Him and serving Him. You know, I feel like I see a lot of like Christian zombies that attend church. I'm not, I'm not saying here... <laughs> I don't think, but it's like Christians that just walk around and they like have a Christian, like, like a Christian face on, they're just, you know, smiling. And... But there's, it doesn't seem like they're really enjoying God. Doesn't it seem like there's a level of, man, I love Him with all my heart, so they're just doing what Christians do. Frank, can I just tell you something? God wants you to enjoy Him. 
He wants you to love Him. He wants you to do things for Him, yes, but not in place of doing it with Him and enjoying Him. Enjoy the giver. Third of all, finally, notice the gift, verse 18, of His own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now, James wants to make sure in looking at all the beautiful gift wrap on the gift and on the giver, he wants you to see the greatest gift here is our salvation. That is the greatest gift that when times are hard, you, you don't focus on all that is wrong, you get your eyes back on the cross. Get your eyes back on Jesus. If you doubt the love of God for you based on what you're going through or the goodness of God based on what you're going through, then take a journey back to the cross and recognize God demonstrated His love and His goodness for you, and it is fixed. And it is not based on what you feel or what you're thinking right now. And so rest again in the salvation that God has given. Now, very quickly here, uh, notice this phrase, brought us forth. Now, this states this big word. Um, don't mind the screen, just that one, this one. Um, the re regeneration. Re he brought us forth. This is the doctrine of regeneration. And this is God's gracious act where He grants new life to a person who is spiritually dead. So, when I was 10 years old and God saved me, I was born a sinner, when I realized the gospel was true, God regenerated me. He caused me to be born again. Uh, you remember Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was dead. Jesus said, come forth. That happens every time someone gets saved in a spiritual way. Jesus says, Jordan, come forth. David, come forth. A person could no longer save themselves and a dead person could get up from a graveyard. And what he's saying here is he brought us forth, dear friends that we were spiritually dead, and He said, come forth, and we got up. Notice John 3. This is what Jesus says. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, you could underline born again. You must be regenerated. You must be born again. Verse 7, He says, He goes on and says, that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So notice, the Spirit of God who is the one who causes people to be born again. When, when you and I share the gospel with someone, what we're praying is, is that the Holy Spirit would cause them to come to life spiritually. If He doesn't, they'll never listen, they'll never hear. So remember, we're brought forth, we were brought forth and then I want you to notice three things here very quickly. First of all, in your outline there, the new birth happens by God's will, by God's will. Notice, of His own will, He brought us forth. Of His own will, He brought us forth. It should remind you, John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We're born spiritually dead in sin. Therefore, we don't have the ability to choose God. Left our own choice, we would always choose sin. We would always choose spiritual death. Uh, free will is a myth because everyone's will is not free. Your will's in bondage until God the Holy Spirit sets it free. And when He does, now you choose Christ and you say, I want Him as my Savior. But the reason you did that is because He has awakened you and He has set your bondage will free now. 
So you're very responsible to choose Jesus. But apart from Him taking your will and breaking it, you would never choose Him. And that's what James is saying. You were brought forth, and notice, of His own will. It wasn't your will. You didn't get up one day and say, I need to be a Christian. No, it was of His own will. Notice John 1.11 Notice Jesus, it's, this is about Jesus. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But here's the good news, verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, notice, notice, that's your responsibility. You're supposed to receive Christ if you're in this room. You've never, that's your responsibility. Notice, who believed in His name. Notice, to believe in Jesus is to receive Jesus. If you've not received Him, you don't believe in Him. If you believe in Him, then you've received Him. But notice, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, watch this, nor of the will of man. Well, we could, we could argue all day about free will, okay? And I don't want to do that today. <laughs> but I do simply want to show you that this flies in the face of what is called libertarian free will. And this gives God all the glory and all the praise that anybody would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. I know that makes some of you uncomfortable. I know that flies against some of our traditions, but I'm just simply showing you here that Jesus says people are born again, not by their will, but by the will of God. Notice it happens though, by the word of truth, back to James, by the word of truth, which shows us the new birth happens through God's word. Ephesians 1.13, notice on the screen, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, God saves sinners. How does He save sinners? That they hear the message of salvation. But notice Romans 10, verse 13, this is a beautiful verse, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're in the room today, you're part of the everyone. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When I go over here to the park and I share the gospel with people almost every week, did you know I'm, I'm, I'm offering them the gospel? I'm saying, believe on the Lord Jesus, friend, and be saved. But notice verse 14 and 15, and this is why I do that. How then will they call on Him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who they've never heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So, friends, God brings us forth by the word of truth. So, we must hear, but if we're going to believe it and receive Christ, God's going to, by His own will, regenerate us and cause us to be born again. The result of that is we're going to say, I want Him. I want to be saved. I'm a sinner. Jesus is my Savior. That's how it works. And finally, notice... Ultimately, the new birth is for God's glory. Of His own will, He brought us forth, and then notice that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So again, the reason He uses first fruits of creatures here, remember these are Jewish Christians. And what He's simply saying is, is you're the first fruits, as Jewish people, the gospel was offered to you, you believed it, you received Christ, you're the first fruits of God's work of saving people through the merits of Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 1, the, the, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now, we know Jews by and large have rejected the gospel, but these Jews certainly had not rejected the gospel. And so, friends, the good news here is that they are the first fruits. In the last 2,000 years, God continues to produce fruit through the gospel, people hearing it, 
God saving them, them believing it, getting baptized, taking the Lord's Supper, being a part of a church. All of that happens, at, but these are the first fruits of it. So, it's clear. All of us in this room have been born one time. But the great question is, is have you been born again? Have you been born again? You say, well, Jordan, how in the world would I know that? Well, very simply, right now. Are you relying on Christ and Christ alone for your right standing before God? If you're not, you've not been born again. Because only those who have been born again are resting in Christ and Christ alone, not Jesus plus something else. And so, friends, as we close here, are you doubting the goodness of God because of what you're going through? Well, Pastor James here, he says, if you need deception protection, here's, here's the three points in summary form. Uh, number one, remember, friend, the gifts. Remember the gifts of God. Remember that all good gifts come from God, all perfect gifts. God is designing the perfect gift for you to mature you as a husband, a wife, a single, a widow, a widower, everywhere in between. Second of all, don't forget the giver, for He is the Father of creation. He's the one who created it all, and He's a good, benevolent Father. And then third of all, remember the gift. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Father, thank You for being such a, a good, gift-giving, gracious, amazing God. We stand amazed at You, Lord. We look around our, our families, our friends, our church, our jobs, our lot in life, and all we can say is, God, You are so good. And You're not just good sometimes, You're good all the time. Lord, would You help us to keep our uplook focused on You. For we know that determines our outlook. Help us this week, Lord, when we want to get our, our attention focused on things in us or things around us. As Robert Murray McShane said, Lord, for every one look at ourselves, may we have ten looks at Jesus. May we focus on Him. May we find joy in Him. And Lord, thank You for most of all giving us the gift of salvation. Oh Lord, our desire here at PVC is for many to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We know that it only comes through faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So God, would you save? Would you grant salvation? Would you give us a heart for people around us, people we work with, to introduce to them the best news they've ever heard in their life? Would you help us be graciously bold with the gospel? Would you help us remember as we share the gospel that we're not responsible to make people believe it? God, we saw today that is, that is your job. That is what you do. You change hearts. You free wills. That's what you do. So God, may we take liberty that we are just sowing seed. But you're going to have to make it grow, Lord. I pray, God, for some in this room who've had a really difficult past three or four years, a very difficult reality, and God, my heart breaks for them, my beloved brother or sister who is experiencing things in this life that are very, very difficult. God, would you protect them from deception of not trusting in your goodness? Would you keep them in your word? Would you keep them lingering with the Holy Spirit in prayer? Would you remind them, Lord, that every good and perfect gift comes from you and that 
As hard as it is to think about that even what they're going through, you're using it for your glory. We know you are not the author of sin, you are not the author of evil, but God, you use it all to glorify yourself, to nurture us, to make us more like Jesus. So Lord, this is a strong word that will only be received by tender hearts. So thank you for ministering to us today. Seal these truths in our mind. Now we think about it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, until we meet again next Lord's Day. Thank you for your word, for how it nourishes our soul. Help us to keep our eyes on you. May we have your vision this week. Be our vision, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.